Hello, and welcome to the Energy Intelligence Global LNG Podcast. I'm Mike Sultan. I'm the editor of LNG Intelligence, one of the components of our LNG service. I'm here with my friend Ian Nathan, EI's director of LNG research, who is just back from speaking at the World Gas Conference in Daegu, South Korea. Hello, Ian, again. Hi, Mike. <laughs> it's uh, it seems like it was just yesterday we we did this, but uh, happy to uh, happy to join you again to uh, to do another podcast. Yes, we we spoke from South Korea, and now we're speaking a much shorter distance. Um, Europe Europe has been dom- uh, well. One thing we want to get to is Europe has been dominating um, the import of flexible LNG, particularly from the U.S. Uh, since Europe became the premium LNG market last last December. But the big question surrounds sort of the mixed messaging of Europe's gas and LNG requirements beyond the immediate headline grabbing needs. And so the question of our podcast here is, you know, what what does Europe really want? Uh, and it is an important question. Um, I think, first of all, the, the key question surrounds long-term uh, supply uh, commitments. Uh, and why is that? You know, because it's the market dynamics that are, are governing higher LNG flows to Europe aren't really energy security. And this is something we've been telling clients for months now. Uh, the industry is, is, is really wondering when European buyers will lock in volumes to ensure that gas supply. However, it is probably too soon to deliver a definitive judgment on the relative absence of a broader spectrum of European buyers uh, committing to LNG supply. I think it's, uh, I think we're we're getting a little impatient. Clearly, uh, given that we're now quite quite some time into into the Russia uh, Ukraine conflict, but uh, but these things take take some time. That's what I mean. That's what the question. I mean, I, uh, a lot of U.S. LNG. I'm sure they're asking this as well, and I, I've ended up asking this. You know, how how, how long is this going to take? I mean, for a European wide buying spree to take hold. I, you know, it's a billion dollar question. It's it's a billion dollar question. How long will it take? Well, you know, I th- <laughs> I, th- I think it's likely you'll see commitments being announced in in the coming weeks and months. Um, you know, but but that time lag. Uh, doesn't suggest that concluding deals will be will be easy for all. Um, you know, I, so I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like this is just a matter of just waiting around for something to materialize. I think that there are are some clear difficulties uh, and some obstacles, challenges, whatever you want to call them, that uh, that do need to be navigated uh, in order for us to see these these developments. Yeah, I mean, I know the differences, but the usual story, but differences between, you know, between buyers and sellers and contract duration, flexibility, pricing. But, you know, I mean, to take it even like another level, it's almost, I find myself wondering whether European buyers really know what they want at all, you know, really know what they want as yet. And that is the key question that we're trying to answer here today. It is the heart of the question. And, and, and there is mixed messaging. Well, let's just call it what it is. It is uh, a little bit of confusing messaging because what, what are LNG sellers supposed to make of, of a near-term scramble for LNG supply uh, to replace Russian gas, but, but ultimately a, a longer-term effort to use less gas, which is part of the broader strategic aim? What this suggests is, is that there is a market for, for shorter deals uh, to meet those immediate needs. And potentially fulfilled by by volumes that are made available by expiring deals elsewhere, uh, you know, and that's that's important in the absence of, of of new supply availability. So that might be getting a little in the weeds, uh, because I think one of the questions that will come up is, well, that that's great, but but where's this where's this where are these new volumes going to originate from? Where are they going to come from uh, right now if if the market is so tight? 
Yeah, but there's another thing here, and that is perhaps that the message might be that message might be somewhat sweeter for portfolio players and traders uh, with volume exposure and flexibility to meet those needs, rather than uh, project promoters that need longer term commitments to support new projects. So, uh, so again, it likely a little a little too early to uh, to judge on how this is going to materialize, but that's an important point. And, and it's really worth emphasizing that, that there just seems to be an emerging niche, um, to meet these, the, the needs of, uh, of European buyers over the next few years, as they sort out this broader, longer term strategic aim. Right. Right. So it's not really one answer. It's, it's, it's different pieces of the puzzle as they come together. Um, what I, what I found, I was reading some of your material and I thought it was very interesting, how you know the Ukraine, the the European exodus from Russian gas, the Ukraine war isn't really isn't the only market driver out there, and I find it amazing how existing forces or existing factors are still are still very much in play. Like you know, if we turn to to the different supply regions, you run into a variety of drivers that really have nothing to do with the war. Uh, and we'll, let's we we'll just want to talk about North America for a minute. You know, we see that the latest wave of contracting, uh, uh, you know, it appears to be more of a continuation of previously established buying momentum. Uh, you know, more from, from Asian buyers as opposed to a reflection of European demand. Uh, I mean, Asia led by China, represents most of the buyers. And so, Ian, you were telling me earlier that, uh, you know, Chinese-led buying in the U.S. has a lot more to do with ongoing Chinese needs than the Ukraine war, which makes sense once you, once you, spread, once you spread that out. Right. And you raise an important point here, which is that this uh, crisis situation that we've been navigating since late February didn't start with the invasion. Uh, you know, it, it, it seems like a long time ago already, but but this has all been in the making for for quite some time, and it's very easy to forget that last year was was bonkers uh, in terms of market developments, and uh, and it's easy to forget that prices really started to rise uh, uh, by, you know, by mid-year and getting into the fall and, and really started to skyrocket and, uh, and all based on a post-COVID recovery and, um, and, and a tight market that we've been talking about for, for really quite some time. So, so these developments are, are a long time in the making and perhaps even going back to even before the pandemic possibly. Um, you know, what you have is that the Russia-Ukraine conflict just uh, exacerbated uh, catalyzed uh, a crisis that was already, you know, uh, really long in, in development. But, but to your point about North America and China, uh, and what we've seen, what we're seeing in terms of announcements and momentum featuring uh, Chinese buyers um, and uh, and U.S. and North American projects more broadly, and yes, of course, a lot of this is a carryover from from last year, uh, just as you saw. Uh, a lot of deals announced last year that were probably, possibly, the result of negotiations started the year before, uh, when prices were much lower during the worst of the pandemic. So, so that goes to this broader point, which is that what you're what you're seeing now is 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 very likely, uh, you know, this ongoing, uh, really ongoing, uh, you know, quest for for volumes to lock in volumes that that has been materializing for quite some time. Yeah, and the time you know, time didn't begin on February twenty fourth. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And from a Chinese LNG uh, requirement point of view, uh, I think you need to look at the U.S. as meeting key needs that include uh, an abundant supply opportunity and diverse pricing, uh, and 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 U.S. ventures and U.S. supply. Are likely the best option to lock in supply now, and 
Um, and what's really important North American, and interesting, right. yeah. yeah, yeah, right. It, 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 what, what's what's really important and interesting is uh, support of new projects, and that's a bit of a departure from from previous trends. Uh, you know, where where you had uh, developments with uh, uh, with existing uh, operators. So we're now starting to see this. Um, you know, spreading of the wealth uh, of sorts uh, into into new newer project developments that have yet to uh, to reach FID, and and you have the Chinese buyers really providing an anchor for not just U.S. and North American developments, but in fact an anchor for for new supply more broadly. But also one other note on on Chinese uh, Chinese buyers and 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 uh, supply agreements is that. The encouragement of, of second tier buyers to find and import their own volumes uh, is a matter of Chinese policy, and that's been helpful as well. We've seen them really come into their own, um, you know, not just in concluding deals, but also if you look at China, uh, developing their own their own terminals as well. So this is part of a, a broader uh, uh, policy development as well. Very important uh, development. Yeah, beyond, beyond the headlines, as, as it were. Um, one thing I also want to talk about here, we're, since we're talking about USLNG, there, you know, the, if you do the math, the, there's enough USLNG capacity in development to, the, to replace Russian gas exports to Europe entirely. But, and there's another factor that's beyond the, that's, that's sort of been going on for a long time. We, we debated this a little bit. Um, you know, commercial is, is commercial interest the limiting factor for USLNG, or is it the lack of regulator-approved projects? And I thought you uh, you had a good answer, a good nuanced answer in, in uh, critical trends. You could go, go over that a little bit. Sure. Uh, you know, we, we've done the math, and we put some numbers behind replacement potential coming from the U.S. And, and, and there's a lot of volume to talk about. There's a lot of volume that... Uh, there's a lot of capacity under construction. There's a lot that is poised to reach FID. There's even more under development that's working working toward FID. So there's there's a lot going on, and it, it really is a huge number. But but right now this is all very theoretical, and none of it really takes into consideration uh, infrastructure constraints in Europe or moving goalposts on what those needs may actually be in five or 10 years. And again, that goes to this broader mixed messaging uh, that we've been talking about here. And that is, you know, all, all, all of this uh, is, is great. U.S. developments, uh, Chinese interest, uh, uh, firm commercial deals, you know, so there, there's, there's a lot there to, to take in. But you bring up the really interesting issue here, which is the risk to U.S. LNG growth. And we did cover that in Critical Trends last month. And when we looked at this, we found that the key U.S. growth risk is a commercial one for now. And that is despite the important uptick in both firm and preliminary commercial commitments that we've been seeing over the last, uh, I would say, even more than a couple of months, really going back to uh, going back almost 12 months at this point, where we really started to see that uptick in, in, uh, in commitments to U.S. LNG. So what do we have? We have a half a dozen ventures have enjoyed those firm supply deals over the last 12 months or so. And some of them still require additional commitments to move forward, to be sure. Uh, and that's an important commercial piece of this question. But we also are looking at the fact that there are some 75 million tons of FERC-approved projects that have yet to announce firm sales agreements. And that's, that's where this commercial risk question comes into play. It is a huge amount. Uh, but the really interesting aspect of the risk profile is the potential for increasing firm deals with ventures that have yet to achieve full regulatory approval. And that's where things get really interesting. So we have 
uh, two projects that currently reside in this category. And one of the things that we've highlighted is that if additional agreements follow, the growing misalignment uh, will, will then place policy and politics more firmly at the center of that risk equation. Now, in terms of what Europe wants, there might be a narrower space for European buyers to support new U.S. projects directly, given a misalignment on duration. So that's worth considering in the, 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 the European requirement picture. But from a U.S. point of view, uh, that's really the, the, the risk factor is, is, is whether the commercial interest is with uh, projects that are already, uh, already passed the regulatory, uh, 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 the regulatory process or those that have not. And, um, you know, and we're not quite there yet on the, on the regulatory piece yet, but it's an important question because we've seen these, these, some of these projects now start to get interest and, and, you know, what we don't want to see is we don't want to see them encounter regulatory issues after those firm commercial deals, uh, are, are concluded. Yeah. Your table set it out very well, showing which ones had been approved, which ones, uh, had commercial interest. It laid it out very, really well. Let's turn over to, uh, to, uh, Europe and Qatar and which is, uh, you know, uh, again, you have the, the, you have existing issues that way predated the invasion, you know, seller buyer alignment problems, et cetera, contract duration, price indexation. Um, this the stumbling blocks you had before are still the stumbling blocks you have today, uh, you know, and talks really haven't gone anywhere yet as yet. What I thought was the thing that jumped out at me most interesting, what we what we wrote about was Qatar Energies. Uh, it's it's almost like their key card to play in terms of Europe is, the, is their own Golden Pass project in the U.S. I didn't expect that to be said. Um, is that how you see that or? Well, well indeed, uh, there's a lot here. Um, you know, the, the Qatar Germany story. Uh, predates the Russia-Ukraine crisis, uh, as does Qatar Energy's Europe strategy formation in general, um, and this this is something that that goes back really quite some time. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting because Qatar Energy was in an advantageous position uh, prior to uh, the hostilities that broke out earlier this year. You know, and certainly we're 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 seeing that both with increasing exposure to European terminals uh, and uh, and and pronouncements with regard to uh, carbon capture plans and and a lot of things that that seem to align with what Europe was going for. Um, but of course, with uh, you know with Europe becoming a premium market and with the growth of US LNG, uh, you know, into Europe, uh, you know, we started to see some some interesting competitive forces uh, really you you know uh, uh, come to the forefront. And we're now also starting to see some some questions about the extent to which Qatar Energy is uh, is is going to be able to uh, conclude uh, firm deals with uh, with German buyers. So a lot of this continues to come down to seller buyer alignment, and 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 of course it goes without saying. I think that if a concrete deal is reached between Qatar Energy and 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 any German buyer will will clearly have a much a much greater visibility on what works for the counterparties. So now that that's that's great. Uh, looking forward to that clearly. Uh, and and this is where a Golden Pass could could play an important role in meeting everyone's requirements. You know, this is a Qatar Energy's a foothold in the U.S. that provides uh, uh, the the flexible uh, volumes uh, and certainly those proximate to Europe that that could meet the uh, the needs. But uh, there's obviously more more going on here than than just looking at Qatar Energy's foothold in the U.S. You know, we believe and it's reason to believe that 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 Qatar may have broader ambitions than just selling LNG 
uh, into Europe as part of, of its negotiations with European buyers. And, and that would make a lot of sense. Uh, and, and it'd be consistent with, uh, you know, with, with previous trends and, and certainly uh, with, with uh, what we understand about, uh, about Qatar and its, its place in the world and what it's trying to achieve, uh, certainly politically. You know, but it does add an yeah, but it adds an additional element into <laughs> into negotiations. And yes, just, it makes it more than just about buying and selling LNG and in uh, uh, the in, in, in commercial terms. There's certainly more to it than that. Yeah, that's quite very big, a bigger picture. Um, if we have just a couple minutes, uh, did you want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, you were you were you, what you learned and heard? I guess uh, just a couple minutes. What you learned and heard at the World Gas Conference in South Korea? Uh, we spoke while you were there for a few minutes, but this is a much shorter distance call. Uh, <laughs> we, we did we did speak for a few minutes. Uh, I don't remember what day it was or what time it was, but uh, yes, um, yes. But, but I, I can talk for a few minutes about uh, about what I uh, what I took in from from the conference last week in. Korea and 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 particularly relevant to our conversation here today on, on what Europe wants, uh, energy security was was clearly on the minds of folks at this conference, uh, as were related issues uh, that included gas and LNG pricing and, and volatility, uh, along with decarbonization. Uh, of course, you can't uh, you you can't have a, a major industry conference these days without uh, decarbonization, climate related matters, emissions, and the like being really at the center of uh, of, of the conversation, uh, but in line with with our chat about what Europe wants, uh, this decarbonization piece is 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 particularly relevant because there was, I would say, a sense of urgency around uh, mitigating emissions, but also a seeming sense of of despondency, I would say, about lack of action to date, and at the same time. Uh, clearly, some conflicted feelings given the current price and supply situation. Um, and, and and some worry about the extent to which emissions abatement measures might take a backseat to other other priorities. And and this is important because it also aligns with something that we've been noting for clients for quite some time. And that is, if you look at um, a lot of your or most of or all of your 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 long term deals signed over the last year and a half, you'll see that you know that emissions related matters were not prominent in in those uh, in those deals. So, and that that gives you a clue to uh, I think what's really uh, what's really important these days. Uh, and one of the more interesting discussions uh, centered around future proofing infrastructure. Again, this is is critical to the Europe discussion that we're having here and. Um, and, and, and really central to this broader European outlook and strategy uh, as it considers, and I'm talking about Europe with the big E, you know, with, uh, with regard to all of, all of Europe, uh, as, as the region considers long-term fuel needs. Of course, every country is different, but, uh, but this is part of the debate. And, and, and right now, there does not appear to be a consensus about the right move at this time. And, and you can expect that uh, as, as the weeks and months go on, that there is going to be a lot of hand wringing, uh, or more hand wringing, I would say, about uh, the extent to which uh, new infrastructure uh, is developed, the extent to which is future proofed, and 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 this really aligns with uh, you know the place for FSRUs um, in in as a as a flexible element for meeting those those intermediate gas needs, but not necessarily permanent uh, gas needs. A lot of conflicting, uh, f- conflicting feelings, conflicting priorities going on there. Uh, quite, quite a bit. 
Uh, let's let's uh, why don't we wrap it up? I just want to sum up. You know, there's pre pre war drivers factors still play a significant role even as the war the war continues and as we try to figure out what uh, Europe wants. Um, I want to thank Ian and everyone for listening to the Energy Intelligence Podcast. Please check back with us soon for our latest content, which you can find at energyintel.com. <laughs>